0: Okay, so this is week two of our uh, Christology class. The Word made flesh. Does anyone last week? Last week we handed out the uh, Ligonier statement on Christology. For those who were here, is there anyone who wasn't here last week who needs one of these? Oh,
1: that all? One? Oh, that's okay. That's
0: okay. Oh, no, that, that's no they've got
1: one at the house. Oh, perfect. perfect. And he can
0: give me one later. Thank you. I will. I will. Uh, I haven't placed the order for more yet, but I will do that since we are have, have run through them all. So I want I want to start off this morning just kind of a, on a more devotional note before we dive into um, the the statement and looking at articles six through nine. So you don't have to turn with me to these passages, but I just want to walk us through some some scripture, kind of looking at the question, why why is this study important? Why would we want to dig into kind of what some people might see as getting into the weeds of of this? Like we we tend to have, I think in, in modern day evangelicalism, there can be a bit of a flavor of why is this important? You know, is shouldn't we just love one another? And kind of, yeah, we know Jesus Christ died died for our sins. Isn't that isn't that enough? And why why do we need to go deeper? It seems like maybe what you're getting into with all this theology is um, is just getting into the weeds. And there, you know, we hear certain statements like doctrine divides. But that shouldn't be the way it is. Uh, I I heard um, R.C. Sproul uh, in an obviously previously recorded video, he was actually talking, it was around the time of the release of this statement, and he was kind of doing a little bit of an interview about why they released this statement. And he quoted one of his former teachers, theologian G.C. Burkhauer. Burkhauer says, All sound theology must begin and end with doxology. And that's the idea that our worship and praise of God is the very thing that drives us to want to know Him, theology. And the more we know Him, the more we want to worship and praise our God. And as His children, this is the very thing that we should find ourselves enveloped in. One of the very reasons we want to open the Word of God is to know who our God is, and to delight in him, and to delight in the fact that he has not only revealed himself to us and made himself known, but he has actually come down, condescended to rescue us, that he has sent his son, the word made flesh, to, to rescue us through his perfect life of obedience, through his substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. He sits on high even now, (coughs) mediating for us. It's a joy. So it's that, this whole idea, doctrine doesn't divide. It can when we use it wrongly. But when we enjoy doctrine, when we enjoy theology, it is really an enjoyment of our God. And we're kind of fulfilling what and we think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we get to do as believers. So I'll look through a few of these passages then. Just to think of kind of the how awesome it is, the statement of the word made flesh. Exodus 19. I just want to paint the scene at uh, Sinai. Exodus 19, beginning with verse 16. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And there's all these instructions around Moses going up to Sinai to receive the law, to receive the Torah. And the instructions are, there is a perimeter around my holy mountain. And if anyone dares touch it, whether it's a person or an animal, you're to kill them. And because of how holy I am, you don't touch them to kill them. You actually have to stone them to kill them. Don't touch them. Stone them. So there's this terror around Mount Sinai, the receiving of the law. Then as... Uh, Moses receives the instructions, uh, receives the law, he receives the instructions of the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle. Exodus 40 ends like this in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, this is Moses who was able, who talked to God as one talking face to face. Moses who got to go up onto Mount Sinai and receive the, the law from God. Moses, who God passed before and declared who he is, says, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this majesty and glory and fear of the Lord we we, we see in scripture. Then move, move forward in Leviticus. And we have this story about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, just the first couple of verses of Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Flipping forward to Leviticus 16. This very important chapter, the author of Hebrews, kind of really digs into this. It's the the instructions for the Day of Atonement. First few verses of chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he goes on to give these instructions for the day of atonement. And it is the day of atonement because it is the one day of the year that someone, and not just someone, but the high priest was given authorization by god to go into the holy of holies with the blood of the sacrifice to to sprinkle it on on the earth to make atonement for the people for himself that one day he was able to go in to do this thing only that one day we think okay well that's just the old testament god right we we all know better than that right we we know that they, there's more wrath shown in the New Testament than there is in the Old Testament because that wonderful, horrible moment of the Son of God hanging on the cross receiving His Father's wrath. No other point in history have we seen so much wrath than at that point on Calvary. But we also think of stories like uh, 5, uh, Acts 5, Exodus. <laughs> trying to bring a little Old Testament into my New Testament. <coughs> Acts 5, where um, where Ananias and Sapphira lie. And they not only lie to the church, but they're lying to the Holy Spirit, and God strikes them dead. So, um, so then when we turn to John 1, as we think about the... As we think about God, the, in all the awe and wonder of who God is, and we read John's account, says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made." And verse fourteen, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us." The word became flesh and and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I don't know about you, but that kind of sends shivers down my spine just thinking how awesome it is that as we have this testimony of who our great God is, that he has then... Condescended to us and took on flesh to bear our iniquity, to rescue us, to do what we could never do in our own strength, to do what what no other prophet, priest, or king could possibly do. Jesus Christ came to do, and how just amazing that is! And you have the you have the scene um, where Jesus is transfigured. Before Peter, James, and John on the mountain, and the glory just shines out this blinding light. And there's that the voice from heaven: "This is my my son, obey him." It's it's just this this beauty uh, that our our Almighty God has has condescended to rescue us. It's 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 a shocking thing. As Burkhauer again said, all sound theology must begin and end with doxology. One last reference before we move into into the meat of our study. Romans 12. This is Paul working through this, this great theological letter in Romans, and he's building up these great doctrines. And then in chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore... I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, based on everything I have said so far, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. After all of what I have said about God and about man, about how you have no right to be reconciled with God, but he reconciles you through the blood of his Son, Therefore, present your bodies as a holy sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship, your, your doxology. Worship, worship our God. So this, this is why we're working through this, this study on Christology. We want to know the Word made flesh because it's the most beautiful thing that we could ever know that our God has rescued us through his son. Uh, Turn to to page three, and we want to just start by, want to start by reading through the the entire uh, statement together. I know that's a little awkward sometimes to read something together. Damien kind of broke the ice as we did some of that last week. Uh, I just want to read through the statement together. Damien walked you through kind of those memorization techniques. I don't know if you've had time through the Thanksgiving week to to spend some time memorizing that first uh, stanza. But right now, let's just read, read through it together. So page three, it's this little guy right here. I'll start it off and get, join on in. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us,
1: crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come
0: again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is the Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Okay. Let's look then today as we, uh, Damien, last week took us through articles uh, one through five. Today we're going to be looking at six through nine. And what these articles are doing is kind of digging into the statement that's here on page three and uh, just explaining more of that, getting into uh, what we as a as a church affirm and what we deny. And a lot of these affirmations and denials are what the church has affirmed and denied since its inception. And a lot of the denials have kind of come along throughout the centuries as various... Men, a lot of times with good intentions, honestly, as you, so many heresies, I would say the majority of heresies revolve around the person and work of Christ. And that is because it is mind-blowing to think of God-made flesh. And a lot of times, good men trying to wrestle with these things And they try to reason through it and they come to a reasoned approach of how the word is made flesh, but they do it without the sound doctrine of of scripture. And the church comes along and says, okay, that's all well and good on the surface, but let's dig into the word of God and see what the word of God says. And they open the word of God and they come to the conclusion, no, actually that's, that's not just error, that's heresy because if we believe if we believe that that tears apart the very fabric of the gospel tears apart the very fabric of who Christ is we cannot believe that we reject that. So that's where the many of the denials uh, through this statement uh, come from. so let's let's work through some of these things. I'm going to read uh, the statement and then uh, we'll work through some of Uh, the various aspects of it and read some scripture that goes along with each. So article six, we affirm that Jesus Christ is the visible image of God, that he is the standard of true humanity and that in our redemption, we will be ultimately conformed to his image. We deny that Jesus Christ was less than truly human, that he merely appeared to be human or that he lacked a reasonable human soul. We deny that in the hypostatic union, the Son assumed a human person rather than a human nature. Okay, could someone read, and if, if you want to, it's actually the one verse that's printed um, at the very bottom of page 8, um, Colossians 1, 15 through 16. As we look at Christ being the visible image of God. Image of the invisible God, the firstborn. See your numbers, no, fifteen through sixteen. You so? <laughs> said yes. Uh, you're right. Okay. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Very good. He is the image of the invisible God, Christ. Makes God known visibly is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. As we've talked about before, this doesn't mean that He is actually uh, born in the sense of being just another creator, another uh, creature, higher, maybe a higher uh, creation than the angels and man. No, firstborn has more of the sense of inheritance, and we we think of uh, the this is. You can think of it in the story of the prodigal son. You can think of it in the story of Jacob and Esau, of the firstborn being the one who will inherit. This is is the sense that Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He is the the visible image of God. Someone look up Hebrews 1 and read. Actually, I'm going to read this one because I want to cut it just a little bit short. Hebrews 1, though, we're going to look at the first few verses. And then if someone else wants to be looking up Matthew 17, we'll look at that next. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, or God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. There's that firstborn language again. Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Christ. This is the son of God uh, that this is speaking of. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He he not only created, but upholds uh, the universe by the word of his power. Uh, I remember Doug Searle doing the whole thing with a molecule Mm -hmm. and, and just talking about how Christ is is holding everything together and uh, R.C. Sproul says that if there's even one rogue molecule in the entire universe, it means our, our, our God is not sovereign and Christ is the one who is holding all these things together. Someone read uh, Matthew 17, 1 through 8.
1: <clears throat> and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay.
0: Again, as previously mentioned, this passage of the transfiguration. What an amazing thing, especially for the disciples who still didn't fully grasp exactly who Jesus Christ is. And he he walks... These the three disciples up to the mountain, and all of a sudden, just the radiance of his glory just shines forth. I imagine what that how terrifying that would have been for these, these three men. The radiance is just, just shines forth. Peter being Peter starts opening his mouth and talks <laughs> about building tabernacles for uh for for Jesus and uh for Elijah and Moses. However, how did he recognize that it was Moses and Elijah? That's a good question. But whatever it is, he's like, oh, should we just build some tabernacles for you? He's like, But then all of a sudden, as they're terrifying, cowering down at the voice of God coming down from heaven, Christ comes over and touches them, and they raise their eyes, and it's Jesus whom they're used to seeing. I and mean, we just, again, as we think back to that, those opening passages that I read through, just how awesome and wonderful and terrifying God is, yeah, this, is who, this is who Christ is, uh, wrapped, wrapped in flesh, true, true humanity. This is where the, the passage goes next with this interesting interesting line, that he is the standard, <clears throat> the standard of true humanity. So what is true humanity? Let's think, let's think through this together biblically. Where would we, where do you think we might go to to kind of think, okay, if we're gonna look to the Bible and what true humanity is, where where might be the first place that you go to? Genesis. Genesis. And what do we what do we learn in Genesis about humanity? What's that? Created in God's image. In God's image. Or is there anything else that's created that we're told is created in God's image? No. humanity is created in God's image what else he created us from dust he created us yeah, from the earth is humble yeah he created yeah. us from dust so it's a good it, it, it's you use the word humbled humble that should keep us pretty humble <laughs> From the dust you've been made dust you shall return so we are a creation when we were created we were Created without sin. Ah, we're going to dig into that a little bit more, I think, under Article 7. But yes, created without sin. Well, we'll talk a bit more because that's a hard one, I think, for us to wrestle through when we think about what is true humanity. Uh, We think of, like, you know, to err is human, right? Well, hmm. Maybe our view of what humanity is is a little blurred. Because of our own experience, what is true humanity? So we're created in the image and likeness of God. The uh, confession, consolidate scripture, says um, that we are created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Um, Just for the sake of time, we're not going to touch on all these passages, but Colossians three ten, Ephesians four twenty through twenty four show us this. Again, created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God gave us dominion over the other creatures. That issue of sin. So we're going to hold on, put a pin in sin. because we're going to talk about that a little bit more under Article 7. This says we're conformed to his image. Uh, I'll read this real quickly. Romans 8. A lot. Uh, some of these references are in the book there. They just print out the first, uh, the first verse that's referenced, or the main verse. But Romans 8, uh, 1 through 4, and then verse 29. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He goes on. So it's this beautiful picture of no condemnation, but it's not you're not saved to nothing. You're actually saved to something. We're actually being saved so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not through our own doing, but through the spirit's perfect work in us. And verse 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that uh, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this is part of uh, conforming us to the images of his son. So if Christ is the standard of true uh, humanity, he's uh, he's the visible image of God, he's the standard of true humanity, and we then are being conformed to his image. We, we are being uh, restored and, e- and even in our glorification, going to go surpass what Adam had in the garden to be truly glorified, where there will be no ability even to sin in us. This is the, this beautiful picture as we are ushered into the new heavens and the new earth um, as as God uh, had created us to be a true, true, uh, true human, uh, just like our, uh, just like Christ, we're being conformed to His, his image. Quickly working through the denials, says uh, that He's not less than truly human. He did not merely appear to be human. Uh, he did not lack uh, a reasonable human soul. He did not assume a human person rather than a human nature. And uh, just kind of among the various reasons why these wrought up, um, we think of, let's see here, there's kind of Platonism or Docetism, Gnosticism, that kind of has this idea that spirit uh, is good, but matter is bad. So as your, as your philosophy is matter is bad, spirit is good, then you think about God condescending, the word made flesh, like, okay, wait, how could something perfect and good and holy take on something that is evil? Well, that doesn't work. So scratch that. Let's figure out how that worked out. Well, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, um, we we have a hope that even though our bodies will return to dust, that Jesus Christ on the last day will raise those that all these dust particles of Jeremy up and form my new man glorified self where I will have a body and not not only a body but this body just made right without sin without any of the marks of sin in it this is this is our hope of, of the resurrection um but various um well again for the of time we're not going to walk through all of the the various heresies um, that this is argued against. Let's jump, um, but really quickly, I think this is a good exercise. What are some of the ways we know that Jesus Christ was uh, truly human? Just think of the human experience. What are some things that we can see in Scripture that show us Christ was truly human?
1: He He suffered pain.
0: He suffered pain. He was born. He was born. He died. He died. Died. He died. That's a big one. He wept. He wept. He, wept. He, he experienced emotions, right? He
1: was hungry.
0: He was hungry. <laughs> he was hungry Grusted. and thirsty. He bled. He bled. He was handled by others. What's that? Handled by others. They others. Handled, oh, handled. They yeah, they touched. Others. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he slept. Like he slept. He was, tempted. he was tempted. We're going to talk about that a little bit more under Article Seven. Yeah, so we we have we have the Scripture and the the Gospels that walk us through the life of Christ, and we can see our truly human Savior going through all of these uh, things: the hunger and thirst, and bleeding, and the weeping, his emotions good for us to understand it's, it's uh, very um, can be easy sometimes I think with a lot of the good intentions that uh, these her- heretics have <laughs> is to like okay I want, want to keep Jesus Christ in the God box truly God I'm comfortable with truly man I'm not so comfortable with or if you're really comfortable with truly man like well then it can't be I'm not comfortable with truly God but he's both truly God and truly man. Uh, Another one I wrote down, we see uh, in various passages, he increased in wisdom and stature. He learned. Talk about mind-blowing? God, God learning. We're not going to get into all the nuts and bolts of that, but this is what scripture says. He increased in wisdom and stature. He grew. Um, Article 7, let's read through Article 7.
1: Can I say something? He sure. grew in the wisdom and stages of man. He knew what is in hearts, man's heart. Mm-hmm. Because it was what he knew. It was how man's feels things. He didn't trust us. He met, even though he met us in his image. he came here to learn our way, so he know how to intercede for every one of us.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get into that in just a second with Hebrews. <laughs> yeah.
1: i got to correct some, correct something. Oh, sure. My wife just... Uh, pointed out to me that uh, I said he died as a, as a an image or as a proof that he was truly human. <clears throat> if sin had not entered into the world, there wouldn't have been death. Yes. So he died is not necessarily a proof that he was human. However, <coughs> it was a proof that not only was he God, but that he was also man because God cannot die man and cat. Yes, and he that was yes. necessary. Right. So that that's
0: that's the interesting you have the picture of true humanity but it's that true human humanity stepping into a fallen world. Right. Where hunger and thirst and death and all of these things do take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's but experiencing But the
1: point it. is is that death was not Part, Part of the original. Of the original, yes. Truth, but can we show that God says, I am forgiving,
0: even if you die? Mm-hmm. When he died, our God, the truth about God, he forgave our sins, as high the heaven is above the earth, as the earth That's God's personality, yeah. g- uh, grace and mercy toward the human. So
1: it could be and that God shows his own forgiveness of sin. Yeah.
0: Well, let's, for the sake of time, move on into Article 7. Try to get through these last three real quick. Uh, Article 7, we affirm that as truly man, Jesus Christ possessed in his state of humiliation all the natural limitations and common infirmities of human nature. We affirm that he was made like us in all respects, yet he was without sin. We deny that Jesus Christ sinned. We deny that Jesus Christ did not truly experience suffering, temptation, or hardship. We deny that sin is inherent to the true humanity or that the sinlessness of Jesus Christ is incompatible with his being truly human. When we think of um, his, it mentions here, uh, Jesus Christ possessed in his state of humiliation. I just want to read West, uh, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 27 and answer uh, to kind of uh, help us understand what, what we're talking about when we think of his humiliation the question is, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's kind of, in a nutshell, what we're talking about with his humiliation. So let's let's talk about this um, idea of temptation. As we touched on it under Article Six, Article Seven gets it into a little bit more. Is temptation sin? Not really. Damien shakes his head. No.
1: No, because if if Christ, without sin, was truly tempted, then, then we know temptation, temptation is not right? sin.
0: Yeah. Very good. Uh, so, yes, yeah, temptation in and of itself is not sin. Um, now, there's a, there's a difference with internal temptation and external temptation. Um, James 1, uh, verses 12 through 15, says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am being tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire, uh, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So uh, this kind of this reminds me of Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount about sin coming. Basically, He keeps pointing to the heart. Did Christ have any of those heart sins, those, those sinful desires that are born in temptation internally and then come forth in sin? No.
1: Well, because he was born
0: without a sin nature. Without a sin nature. So he's, he, Christ didn't, t- was not tempted in that sense. But did he face plenty of external temptations? I think we see, we see this most clearly in the garden <clears throat> leading up to his death. Where this is Christ, again, oh, well, yeah, t- talking about temptations, we can think of the t- difference between Adam and Christ. Adam and Eve, given this garden of plenty, saying, What, what, look around you. I have given you this garden with all these trees, all these delicious fruits and food to eat. Go forth and enjoy, except for this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one tree. But everything else is yours. Go enjoy it. Without weeping, without shedding a drop of blood, Adam and Eve saw, oh, wait, I see all this, but yeah, you're right. That one fruit does look extra tasty and desirable. So let's take it and eat it. Then you have Christ in the garden who's the son of God. And he, knowing what is ahead of him, suffering the wrath of his father for fallen humanity, for his children, he is praying, Lord, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. He says, he's sweating as if it were great drops of blood. I think the idea there that I've always heard and I believe is like his... his, He's under so much stress that his blood capillaries are bursting and he's actually bleeding. He's under so much stress. He says, but not my will. This kind of goes to the reasonable human soul part. Not my will, but your will be done. Adam and Eve just give in at the drop of a hat. Christ suffered to the point of actually shedding blood uh, there in the garden. Uh, resisting. Um, make sure there's not any more super important points I want to hit with this one. Um, I, do, I think just the idea that we don't... Um, it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea of what it means for Christ to be truly human when we think of our own experience as being what it is truly human. And, and sin, of course, is part of that. Um, but that is... We have, such, we have something so much better to look forward to. Um, I think uh, it makes
1: it easy for us to recognize that difference when we realize that something was truly lost in the fall. Yes. That in <clears throat> the eating and in the sin that Adam committed, that he somehow became something less than human. Something was removed, or rather added, that subtracted, mm. that the addition of sin <clears throat> subtracted from his humanity.
0: The uh, one my professor is around this scene uh, says it's it's in this instant of of taking the fruit to eat it that Adam and Eve lowered themselves to the level of animal,
1: mm.
0: of acting out of instinct,
1: mm.
0: of just saying, "Oh, that looks good, so i I want I, I'm going to take what I want." Rather than being that humble <clears throat> creature in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that says, Not my will, but your will be done. Um he, super important passage here, Hebrews four fourteen. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That passage along with 1 John 1:9, 9, to, uh, God inviting us to confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses when, when we sin, and we do sin, we have this great invitation to come before the throne room of God to know that our mediator, Jesus Christ, sympathizes with our weaknesses and to know that God has invited us into his throne room saying, I know. Don't, don't call me a liar. I know you're a sinner. And I invite you into my throne room to confess that sin. And guess what? If I didn't spare my own son, do you think I'm not going to be faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? It, it, it's a beautiful thing uh, to think of, uh, the, thinking of uh, Christ as um, being able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, Article 8. We affirm the historical Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit was miraculously conceived and was born of the Virgin Mary. We affirm with the Chalcedonian Creed that she is rightly called the Mother of God and that the child she bore is the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. We deny that Jesus Christ received his divine nature from Mary or that his sinlessness was derived from her. So again, this kind of very quick for for this point, since we don't have uh, really any time left. We are comfortable, along with the historic Christian Church, to say Mary is the Mother of God. Where it goes too far, and where people didn't want to call her the Mother of God, trying and this was uh, really uh, what was it um, Nestorianism trying to separate the the uh, the nature of, of of Christ. We're comfortable saying Mary is the Mother of God, but He did not receive Jesus did not receive His divine nature from her and he did not receive his sinlessness from her he's conceived by the holy spirit for the sake of time we're not going to get into that anymore i want to get to article nine read this and i'll do just something really quick quick to wrap us up we affirm that jesus christ is the last adam who succeeded in his appointed task at every point where the first adam failed and that jesus christ is the head of his people the body of Christ. We deny that Jesus Christ assumed a fallen human nature or inherited original sin. Um, just something I thought of kind of through in this section as, as we're about to head into kind of more of what Christ has done for us uh, next week and looking at this uh, idea, this comparison that's made in Article 9 of Jesus Christ is being the last Adam Obviously, compares him to the first Adam. Uh, I just, I thought of the the uh, analogy I've heard before, or the statement I've heard before about Scripture being a story about trees. And you know, this is this is something that there's a lot of. Uh, I think I've I've seen heard some theologians say there's a lot of signposts in Scripture that we can point to. I've also heard story of mountains. You can do this mountain analogy. The story of trees is this idea that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he placed, places Adam in the garden, and he, as we already spoke about with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam and Eve sinned. They sinned against God. They took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate the fruit that was forbidden, and God. what did God do? He removed them,
1: right? In order to prevent them from eating from yes. the tree of life. So he,
0: he <clears throat> removes them from the garden, in order to keep them from the tree of life. And he posts a, a cherubim at the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword which turned in every direction. So this, this picture of like, no, you have fallen. And it's actually an act of grace to keep them from the tree of life. It says, no, you are not allowed access to the tree of life. Then as scripture moves forward, we come to the cross where Jesus Christ is nailed to a tree. He suffers the curse of of sin and death that we deserve because of the first Adam. Um, He humbled himself, uh, Philippians 2 says, to the point of death on a cross, uh, obeying his father even to the point of death on a cross, which then ushers in. All. I didn't even reference this in church this morning. Uh, I'm not preaching, but in uh, our Advent wreath moment, he goes into the inner veil through, through his death on the cross. This is why the, the veil of the, of the Holy of Holies is torn in two at his death, as the, the earthquake is happening, the, the veil is ripped in two so that we look forward then to Revelation 22. So Genesis 1, 2, 3 starts off with the story of the trees and the removal of the access to the tree of life. Christ dies on the cross to make us right with God, to be our our mediator. And at the very end of the book, Revelation Revelation 22, we see again the tree of life. And the access is no longer barred. It actually says that the tree of life is there, its leaves bearing fruit for every season, so the nations may come to it and eat of it and be healed. It's just this beautiful picture of, of redemption, of, of thinking of, of Scripture as this story of trees. It begins with the tree, man does not handle that, it falls from grace. So God sends his Son, the Word made flesh, to make right. What the first Adam made wrong, than to grant us full, uninhibited access to the tree of life. So we'll look more at that in coming weeks. Um, there's a lot we didn't get into. And as we I think Damien said last week, there's there's so much here. We had to expand it, expand five weeks to six weeks. And really, it could have been a whole lot more. Oh yeah. <laughs> But, you know, sometimes we just. Some some studies you just need to try to just kind of get through a little faster. Okay, well let me pray and we can get down uh, into our uh, service. Father, again I just I praise you uh, for um, the great love which you've shown us through your Son. I pray that you uh, would be with Ryan this morning as he uh, brings us your Word. Help us just to rejoice that we get to sit under the preaching. Uh, you get to to. Uh, hear your your word read the your, the very word of God. Uh, help us to be excited about that that uh, you invite us uh, to know you through your word. Help it to humble us, but at the same time help us to be not because of anything in us, but of what your Son has done for us, that we can have confidence to enter your throne room and we can rejoice. Um, and for the great salvation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.